Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Richard Hill, founder of Hill Industries and Vote Our Voice, shares his story from FX and bond trader at Barclays to VP in capital markets and private placements at Citi, why he had multiple offers, and the cold realities during an economic downturn. We have a candid conversation about how to prepare for interviews, pay back in the 90s versus today. We also find out why he was successful building his own boutique investment bank and what's up next for him. Enjoy. All right, Richard Hill, thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast. Thank you. So it would be great if you could give the listeners a quick summary of your background. I know you've done a lot, so um, (laughs) even the summary may take a little while, but it'd be great just to get that context. Sure. Uh, My career started at uh, what is now CBRE, uh, commercial real estate, uh, when I graduated uh, college. And I spent uh, roughly six years there um, prior to going to uh, back to business school, uh, which I did full time while working full time doing like 60, 65 hours a week. Whoa. So that was an, an interesting thing. Um, from there, uh, I then applied and uh, got into NYU to do a, a master's in applied economics. So moved to the East Coast, uh, set up shop in New York, uh, started going to school mm-hmm. uh, full time. Um, That's interesting. You uh, went from MBA straight to you went from an MBA straight to a master's in applied economics. That's true. So I had a little bit of time in between. I had uh-huh. about, um, I started in the summer yep. and uh, I finished in uh, the MBA program in December. So I had about a six month window. The, I moved in January Got it. and it just took a little time to get set up. Um, but then I was just knocking on doors, trying to get a job on Wall Street, doing anything uh, while I was uh, looking to go to school. Uh, so it ended up that I um, contracted with the same firm that I was working for on the West Coast, CBRE, mm-hmm. uh, to work for them, but in a slightly different capacity. So they paid me a salary to do the same job that I was doing before, which was a commission-based thing. And I did the same work, but I worked for two uh, managing directors in the uh, White Plains office, uh, mm-hmm. working in the Westchester market. Cool. Uh, doing investment real estate and uh, office real estate. 
So and were you just like you're like a- analyzing deals and stuff like that, like looking at the financials, see if it would make sense, all that stuff? Exactly. Except I was a little bit more useful since I had been a broker. Mm-hmm. I could actually uh, meet with clients on my own. Okay. Um, far, uh, uh, source deals myself. Did everything exactly the same, except there was no big commission at the end of the, <laughs> the rainbow. I was just getting a, but I got a salary every uh, every month. So it was a little different, plus a little bonus on top of that from the brokers that I worked for. Right. Um, and it worked out really well. Then one of them at some point uh, broke off and went to a company called Fallon Hines and O'Connor. I actually helped uh, them set up a, uh, an office in Connecticut. Okay. That kind of made the whole dynamic a little different because I had to commute from Connecticut back into the city to go to school as well. That's tough. So Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, doing all that, by the time I, uh, um, I got to my, um, in between the, the, the two years of uh, school in applied economics, I uh, went to AIG trading. And before, we, bef- net- before we go there, yeah, can but- you tell me a little bit about what was the rationale bes- behind going uh, to get your master's in applied economics? It's an interesting choice um, coming from an MBA. Like, did you feel like it was rounding you out in some way that you didn't have before? Was it just something interesting to you? Uh, it actually, yes, it rounded me out. I was in, at the time I was interested in being a FX trader. Okay. And I thought that having the, uh, having a, a deep, uh, understanding of economics would give me, uh, a better understanding for how the currencies move Got it. and what was important for, you know, the behavior of currencies. Cause I had done, I did my, th- my thesis for my MBA on FX, on an FX, uh, trading related topic. And it was basically how uh, information, how fast uh, information um, uh, basically changes or you see the effect of uh, news information impacting currency markets. Very cool. And this is back like when the internet was just like blossoming. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Back in the 90s. So that's very relevant. It was very timely. Yeah, very timely of exactly. your, your very cool. So okay, so you're you you're at CBRE. You're kind of helping this. You set up this Connecticut office. It's a little bit of a strain because you're going back into school in New York and you're doing the reverse commute. Um, tell me what yep. what happened after that. Um, so in between uh, in between years, I took uh, I got to take uh, three uh, the two and a half months off to do a stint at AIG Trading. Mm-hmm. Uh, since they knew that my idea, the the plan for was to go to Wall Street after I finished school. Okay. So, I spent that time there, learned a ton about the FX markets, uh, rotated around different desks. Um, really good outfit. Um, lots of uh, uh, it's it's a little bit different when you're actually at a company versus the theoretical stuff that you get in school. Mm-hmm. A lot different. Just yeah. a whole lot different. Tell me about that. So, a little, tell me about a little, unpack that a little bit. So like, you know, you're learning all the theory of FX trading in school or, or trading in general, and then you get into the desk and it's, it's very, is it more like, here's, here's what you need to do from like the more senior trader and like, don't listen to the theory or, or, or I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> so, what, so what's interesting about it is uh, one, the, probably the first difference that you notice is just the terminology, which I thought was kind of interesting because there's no reason that school shouldn't be able to give you that. Mm-hmm. Right. It yeah. Shouldn't there should be no reason why you know I had to get to a trading desk before you you learn what a pip is, which is basically you know um, uh, 
um, just one unit uh, on an FX on an FX trade. They Got just it. call them pips. How many pips between you know bid ask spread and so forth? Everything is in pips. Right. Um, and so you, but you don't get you don't even have that basic terminology when you're just learning about uh, FX or the little that they cover it. Um, even in an economics program, I took plenty of finance. Right. Not there either. Um, <laughs> the, the the theory of hedging uh, in terms of like how much and how it's a little different when you're looking at, at a moving market and figuring out because you're the, the main difference is is that everything that you learn in a um, in a classroom is static. Right. It's taking a picture in uh, a window of time and on a trading desk. You're trying to, you know, it's it's literally like a moving target. Like you're a quarterback throwing at a receiver that's running down the field, <laughs> right? So, okay. Versus throwing, you know, just shooting a, Static, a, an yeah. arrow at a, a target. at a target that's sitting, you know, just in front of you. Interesting. That's a great analogy. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so you're, um, so how was that? You learned a lot, obviously, at that uh, the AIG trading, and that was that was just for a, almost like an internship. It sounds like, right? Yes, okay. internship. Yep. Okay. And then. I uh, did my, uh, you know, I started my second year. I'm, um, uh, I went back to CBRE. I'm working there. Uh, the thing that had changed, though, is that I drastically uh, improved. Um, I came up with what I thought was a, a plan for how to get a job on Wall Street. And I put, you know, I, I would say that, uh, it was the thing that made a, a tremendous difference between looking for internships on, on Wall Street and then getting my full-time job because I literally had every single bank on the street where I interviewed, uh, I was in play with all of them. And, um, and along the way, I actually had one bank that wanted, uh, that wanted me to do uh, real estate investment banking for them and not even finish school. Mm. So it's uh, why do you think you, know, you were plan. why do you think you were in such high demand? So tell me a little more about this plan. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> yes. Um, so when I when I uh, actually uh, consult with people mm -hmm. on Wall Street Oasis, mm -hmm. the number one thing that I tell them that's needed is a script. Okay. So you take, you know, and I, I'll typically have them start with 20 questions, the most obvious question that they're going to get in an interview. And yeah. you have to have you have to basically write out those answers and memorize the answers, and yeah. you do not deliver not even one word different from what's on your script. It's like being in a given the uh, the words of a play, and you're an actor in that play. Do you feel like it, that can hurt how genuine you come across sometimes? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely no? not. Okay. Because it's it's just the opposite. It's it's the exact opposite. You're not searching for content when you're asked for a question. You're asked a question so you can spend all your attention to the delivery, uh, voice it, the delivery, yeah. and mimicking the behavior of the person you're in the room with. Interesting. To make them feel comfortable. Yeah, I've always, so I've always suggested like, details. I've always suggested like bullet points, and you know, you know exactly the points you have to hit to come across a little bit. But I guess you're right. You could almost script in almost every little nuance even if it's scripted in such that it doesn't look perfect. So like an actor who, you know, when they're delivering their lines, it's not always the, per it's, it's not like a robot delivering lines. It's emotion. It's filled with emotion. It's filled with passion. It's filled with, and it's delivered like a human would. 
right? So it's, it's exactly. yeah. Okay. So go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I interrupted you. So I want to hear more about this plan. So the, the script, so, the script is number and one. This, mm-hmm. this came about because I did a round with uh, Merrill Lynch yep. and I had, you know, the typical three interviews back to back. And if I'm being fair, uh, I, for the same question that I received in all three interviews, I knew that one person got the A answer, one got a B minus answer, and the other one probably a B. Yep. And so this was a this was my attempt to do quality uh, control mm-hmm. on the answers and controlling the narrative so that everybody would get the A answer. And so the whole point is that the power in writing a script is the editing. Got so it. if there's a word or uh, a succinct way to say something. You want to edit that into your document. That's why you don't you you don't ad lib because you'll add words that that doesn't that makes your point less concise, or you forget something that could be impactful. This right. way, there's none of that. You just all you're working on is delivery, and you just and your your task is to make it come as come off as natural as possible. But you know the answers before they're even being asked. At least you should by the time you've been interviewing a little while um let's say you know having met with a few banks you're probably at about 70 to 80 percent of what you're going to be what you're going to get in your in the questions that you have so it's a work in progress document the more you interview the more questions that you memorize and that you have at your arsenal so you bring your notepad with you and the second that an interview uh finishes you write down any question that was not on your uh, script prior to the uh, the interview. You prepare for the next the next time that you come in and meet with more people. Now you have a much bigger document, but you since you're writing the uh, script, you pretty much have a head start on the memorization and know what the body of work says. Yeah, and I think you can take this to an extreme if you get access to the company database. You have thousands and thousands of questions, but there's patterns, right? There's certain types of questions that you can kind of map to. So it's mm-hmm. not to say that you have a different answer for every single question out there it's that you for like right. a weaknesses que- weaknesses question you're saying you should have that scripted for a for a strength question you should have that scripted for a tell me a challenging time with a, in a superior you should have that script it's just obvious ones or, yes. or themes um that you those can are the, those are, that's yeah. where you start the, the most yep. obvious because every single person is going to ask you Walk me through your resume. Right. Tell me about yourself. These are the same question, right? Uh, um, you know, so why are you here? Whatever you, when they ask you to go through the, uh, the resume, when I do interviews or mock interviews, when we start yep. with uh, uh, for people that come through yep. Wall Street Oasis, yep. I will say 100% of the people that I, uh, that I work with make the same mistake. Right. They they go through and then they they're almost regurgitating what's on their resume. Right. Look, I can read. So you're supposed to answer that question in literally 20 seconds max because you just tell them where you work. And if they want any detail, they should ask you. Right. But you're not really trying to you don't have to go into detail and say and go through every bullet point or tell them something that they can read because they're holding a piece of paper. Right. You're just trying to. See how you, and you just need a technical answer to their question. You're, it's not about how deep you can go, um, which which brings me to um, uh, another problem or a mistake, common mistake that people make that are interviewing for Wall Street jobs. One is that second one is 
is that most, almost everybody that they're bringing in to interview are all smart people. Yep. And if you've worked at one of these banks, you, the resumes that you've seen are incredible. So um, you can say no to anybody and see a more unbelievable person, the next resume or in the stack. It's just, it, it's the, 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 the talent pool is very deep. Right. So trying to, but, but a common mistake for smart people is they want to impress people with how smart they are. And it's like, you're not getting any points because everybody, they already assume it. They already assume you can do the job. They're, they're not there evaluating whether or not, how smart you are. You're not going to, there's nothing you can say that's going to make this just going to wow them with right. your intellect. So why, why spend your time doing that? So the focus should always be on just trying to be likable. Is that what you're suggesting? Exactly. It's a personality contest. You're yeah. spending a lot of, depending on what type of uh, work you're doing, you know, especially if you're going to be a banker, you know, some of these, they're going to literally spend more time with you than they spend with their families. And they want to know whether or not they're going to enjoy the time they spend with you. Um, or are you just going to get on their everlasting nerve and you got to be that person. Do you think that um, there's a way somebody who is maybe a little more shy reserved to become more outgoing extroverted and likable with practice absolutely i uh i have done this um with uh a few people that i've uh consulted with i literally tell them to go to a hotel that is located next to an airport in their city mm -hmm. that's because there's lots of business people uh, that travel traveling salespeople. Mm -hmm. Much easier with that group of people to strike up conversation with a stranger than if you're in the downtown area or someplace away from um, a traveling, you know, the traveling sales crew. Right. So you go there, the people are much, they're more receptive, you have a much more receptive audience and it's a great place to begin and just go there and start conversation with total strangers and do it until you're comfortable. That's great. I love that. <laughs> I love that advice. So, okay. So, so let's go back to your story. So I think some awesome advice you, so you ended up um, coming through CBRE, AIG internship, and then you had all these people kind of bang down the doors. What, what made you choose and where did you go and why did you choose that specific um, place that you ended up? Uh, I had taken a job in the middle of the school year with uh, Barclays yep. uh, capital. Um, and I was doing, um, uh, in the research group, uh, doing research on uh, mortgage-backed securities. Yep. So I had familiarity with the firm and all the people, and I really liked the people. And while I kept going and going with all the firms, and man, I was like 40 uh, um, uh, interviews in with Goldman, they were just all of them. And um, I decided... Uh, you know, one of the things that, that also was a casualty of all of the work and time away and so forth is I was, at the same time I was taking a full, a full load of classes in school and writing a thesis, interviewing for Wall Street jobs, uh, working two full-time jobs, and one part-time job that, where I was doing research for a paper that would be published with the World Bank. So I'm doing all of that. Yeah. And on top of it all, I'm going through a divorce. And oh, so, um, it was just, it was just, a it was, that was tougher emotionally. So, um, it just got to the point where, you know, I, at some point, uh, while I kept winning, um, I had narrowed it down to, I think I had narrowed it down to, uh, chase derivatives. Um, 
it was a generalist program, but in fixed income with um, mm-hmm. with Barclays and um, Smith Barney uh, looking at their um, capital debt capital markets. And so at that point, it was just, you know what, I think I'm most comfortable at Barclays. I'm just going to take the offer. Take, I'm just going to go in and, uh, and ask the head of um, sales who ran the, the group to uh, to come to work there. It literally took the – he asked me, are you sure you want to work here? I said, absolutely. He walked into an office, and literally 20 minutes later, he just came to my desk and said, you're done. And that was it. But how, so, how did – it's because you had already worked there, though, right? There was that relationship. And, well, okay. so, so, so here's what I did. Yeah. You, you still have to go through the same process, right? Right. So I took the forms. I knew the, I knew the process, took the forms for, that they have for interviewing, yeah. and I handpicked three people on the, uh, on the uh, trading floor, <laughs> and I went to them. I handed them a form and said, I need you to fill this out. And I said – and then I went and handed it to Peter, the uh, head of uh, uh, fixed income, and said, here's you – know, Here are my interviews. <laughs> Here, yeah, here are my reviews and all of their, you know, you can talk to any of the guys and so forth. And and he sat literally like next to the uh, CEO of the firm, and it was uh, it worked out great. And so That's that funny. was it. It took nothing to, it was, it was really easy, and it was one of the best decisions they ever made. And do you feel like that, obviously things have changed a lot. I don't think that would happen nowadays, right? It's a lot more structured, and or maybe it's not. Tell me, is it, it, have things changed a lot, or is it still kind of at least on on the trading floors, it's still kind of... That's why I tell you the hardest thing to get is the first, the phone number to start the process off and to get mm-hmm. in play with the firm that you want to start, you want you really want to be at. Right. Um, that's why it's hard to, you know, everybody wants to interview with and get offers from 10 firms or something like that, but that's not realistic. Right. It's probably better to focus on three because of the work that's in, involved in working all three of them. So you really do have to meet with somebody and breach the perimeter, uh, starting with informational interviews, getting uh, getting uh, positive feedback from that, and then going to the next uh, step, which is a regular you know regular round of interviewing, getting from that into meeting with more like, senior how did, people. How did you balance? How did you balance all this? Because you were in school, you were doing the internship, you were having a lot of other personal stuff going on. How did you balance it all? How did you stay sane? It was, and a lot, of, and that was the reason why at NYU they asked me, uh, um, uh, a woman there asked me to come back and do uh, uh, motivational speaking uh, to a, to the business group there and the um, economics group there because she knew what I went through. Yeah, I basically, um, I just, I just, I really wanted it more. That's what, I knew what I wanted. And mm-hmm. I, I had the perseverance to, uh, to make it happen. And the tough thing with working at CBRE was, and, and I had a little bit of flexibility there. So I didn't have too many times where there was an interference with something that had to get out. You know, right. a lot of times I would be coming back from interviews at 10 o'clock and then I'm working till two, three o'clock in the morning to get the work done that I missed because at a, a drop of a dime, I might have to actually get in a car and drive down to the city and, and, and interview with somebody who says, right. yeah, Hey, I can meet with you right now, you know, in the next hour or two. And I would never say no. Do you think maybe so, that's, maybe that's one of the reasons you pulled the plug and just said, okay, for, forget it, I'm going with Barclays is you're like, I can't exactly. do this anymore. <laughs> Exactly. It's like killing that me. Had a lot to do with it. Yeah, and you it, felt comfortable it, it there. Had to stop. 
Yeah, yeah, it had to stop. Yeah, it's just not healthy. It had to stop. It was just too much. I mean, yeah, you know, I could have held out for Goldman, but I knew it was another sixty interviews to get there, <laughs> and it's like it's just not, you know, it's just not worth it. And yeah. uh, at least it wasn't for me at that time. And then having, uh, not to mention, I had a two-year-old. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it was um, it was tough days. You know, when I got my joy, uh, job at Barclays, we were working twelve-hour days, and that was like a vacation. Yeah. I didn't have to commute anywhere. It was just one place. Yeah. Show up at six in the morning, pretty much leave it, you know, uh, leave at six in the evening. Uh, it was great. I was working in London as a bond trader. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then I came back to New York, worked uh, on the uh, government desk there, then moved over to the emerging market debt desk, which is what I really wanted to be doing. Because I had sent somewhere along the line when I was in school, my uh, thesis advisor convinced me to not uh, pursue being an FX trader, but to go into the bond market because the spreads were bigger. And hmm. he says, "Look, it's just you're just getting too skinny in FX. You you know you won't be happy come bonus time. Fixed income's the way to go." Was he right? So or she right? He he was right. Yes, he. Uh, uh, that was Ian Giddy. He since passed away, unfortunately, but he was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I made a great uh, decision going into um, into bonds versus FX. Um, now you were especially where FX is now. You, you had your, business. you know, you had your MBA and a master's. So this wasn't like some entry level role. You'd already worked for six years. So was the pay significantly? Was it similar to what it is to today nowadays, where the the base is obviously much lower and then the bonus potential is super high, depending on how the desk does? Um, actually, today is way better. So okay. analysts make what I I came in as an um, uh, as an associate, right? So and 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 back in those days, they were only recruiting from like eight schools. Okay. So there was there was a concentration of schools. Now there's a much broader range of schools that you can go to business school at. Right. Then you could go to any school in in those days to be an analyst. But you, if you wanted to be an associate, you had to go to a short list of schools. So Got like, it. at that time, Yale was not on the list. <laughs> you couldn't go to <laughs> get to have a master's degree from Yale and and get on the street because part of the process is. The people who initially vet you are alums from your school. Right. And so things have changed dramatically, I think, in that. And even in terms of the calendar, when they start to interview for people now, I mean, they're even interviewing for like internships and full time. That's like right now. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot early. Everything is earlier now and uh, and has changed. And then the compensation is just amazing. I mean, I have a, a friend whose uh, son is at uh, Cowan and Associates. Yeah, I mean, they're starting off at um, at ninety five. Um, he knew um, this is for an analyst right out of school, ninety five base. Yeah, yeah. And he <clears throat> talked to a guy at uh, to another uh, analyst, a senior analyst who's been there a couple of years. He said uh, his first year, he, he was a sec, he's a second year analyst. His first year, his bonus was one hundred and twelve percent of uh, his salary. <laughs> So not bad. You know, I mean, now, granted, they, they're working those guys 16, 18 hours in banking. I right. mean, it's different for trading. Yeah. It's not going to be that. No, you just, just, there's no value add to make it that. But uh, on the banking side, where you're absolutely working two full-time years inside the scope of one, right. um, that's available. When, at, when I was at Barclays, I mean, we were at... You know, our con- we had a sign-on bonus of like twenty-five, and 
and a guarantee of another 25 uh, bonus at the end of your first year yep. with like a buck and a quarter uh, base. Right. And they did not give us one penny over that <laughs> over what they said they were going to give us in bonus. That's not bad though. Yeah, I mean, that's for back back then. It's that's that's a lot of money. So you were <clears throat> you were basically that's kind of what they offered the MBAs, right? That was the associate level. Yeah. And so that was the associate level. Did anything change when you went to London? Then you came back. Were you considered like a third year associate? Like I, I don't I'm not as familiar with the trading kind of what um, was that getting bumped no, every but, year. Um, <clears throat> I didn't. So in, in terms of comp. Um, I made more than anybody else because I had made I made, my first year I made three mil, uh, just under three million dollars in trading uh, uh, revenue for my desk wow. just on my own prop trading and they didn't peel me off you know I thought I was supposed to make you know the average guy was making close to ten percent of what they made yeah I didn't get nearly that yeah so I just got the what they guaranteed me was just nothing oh, so man. Um, <laughs> the the thing that is uh, that also happened though is I did get some title because. Um, it was back in the day where the um, um, first it was the uh, Asian contagion, and then this was all kicked off by um, a crisis in short term. What is uh, uh, Russian debt, GKOs, uh, which is a, similar to our um, uh, UST bills? Yep. That market got crushed. All emerging markets everywhere got crushed, and every bank lost money. We had a client of our of my desk. My client, who was an internal hedge fund to Barclays, so it was a Barclays uh, black box hedge fund. Right. Uh, my client, but they lost half a billion dollars in Russian GKOs. Jeez. So what did they? What did the? Uh, was the answer for the? Um, and it was a senior guy who came over from Goldman, and you know, it was just the dumbest trade ever. But they <laughs> they rode the uh, the trade into the dirt. Yep. And they decided to appease the board. They'll get out of emerging markets, which meant me. <laughs> oh, man. And so the senior guys on the desk, had they saw this coming a little earlier, and they started jumping ships. So I ended up being the head of uh, emer uh, emerging market trading in uh, the Americas uh, for Barclays. Um, Pretty soon. Guys were leaving. So wait, yeah, so, they, so they didn't get rid of it. They didn't get rid of it. You just, they got rid of the senior guys, and you kind of stepped into that, into that void. No. This is before they before they then decide to get rid of the oh, okay. deck itself. Okay. So I was the guy who was left last man. I was last <laughs> standing <laughs> on a sinking ship and doing all that. So I had this really nice title that that nice. was two bucks I could ride the subway or a buck fifty at that point. That's but, funny. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it, the blood was was flowing red all over with emerging market debt, uh, emerging markets guys, sales and trading guys. And it was pretty heartless the way they do it too. They had uh, one uh, group, like I think at Nomura, mm -hmm. they came in. They told everybody to come into the conference room, and they basically said, "You're all of you. It was like 17 guys. You're done. The cars are waiting for you downstairs to take you home." And so you'd never go back to your desk when they tell they don't want you because you know you can press a button and, and yeah. say buy you know buy a thousand here. So they don't. You'd never get to go back. Right. Um, so. For me, it wasn't quite so heartless, um, and so. But those were, you know, the, some of the stories that were going on as to how they got rid of people was just amazing. So tell me, what was the so that so eventually they did shut it down, and that was kind of the end of your time there. 
That, right. that ended my time there mm-hmm. uh, after a couple of years, and then, then I started a uh, online trading company mm-hmm. uh, doing uh, FX options. Cool. Uh, with a couple of other guys from the street, I did that for three years. Mm-hmm. We came to a crossroads as to how to grow it, um, and so I went back to the street. But this time, I went to uh, capital markets, and so I started off on the structured finance desk mm-hmm. uh, at Citigroup. And um, yep. uh, from there, I went to um, high-grade global loans. And then I also did uh, financings for the energy group because I was pretty quantitative. So those deals were a little more structured than your average uh, um, uh, global loan that they were doing. And my book was the Northeast book, which was basically all the best customers on the East Coast for uh, Citigroup. Tell me how so that, that how is great. how is that different from the you know being an emerging markets trader to then being in capital markets? How is that? It seemed very different, right? Yeah, it's yeah. much closer to um, client banking than yeah, it is right. to than than it is to trading. Um, the trading, you know, the only things that are different is when you when you're pricing a deal, you you have a syndication desk that does your uh, you, you know the pricing for it. Um, that's um, the same, uh, but how you put you structuring and putting a deal together, it's much more like doing an investment banking deal right. than it is doing a trade. When I was on the private placement desk, um, that when we did 144As, uh, and we're se- that's like selling a private placement in the debt markets. Okay. So that you're you're structuring the actual note that they sell. So the, it doesn't exist. You create it. Mm-hmm. So that's the banking piece. And then the trading piece is you actually have to trade it. And uh, the syndicator's got to find interest for it. And then it's got a price. And, and yep. then it becomes it starts to behave like an actual corporate bond. So in that way, it's kind of a bridge between the two. Um, so that's why they started me out in private. And a great place to go. Um, a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah. Um, but the emphasis is truly on credit. And basically, private placements are investments that are strictly sold to insurance companies. Ah, okay. So they have private placement desks, pretty big ones. The yep. Banks have them, but they're smaller compared to the size of the um, private companies at yep. the insurance companies. Got it. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So it's good you... money to be made in that because you're a good, you know, you know credit. <laughs> Yeah, and so a lot of your work, like, I mean, you were VP at that point. How much was, like, actually doing yep. the analysis versus just managing people at that point? Yeah, it's a, exactly. So you do, you, you know, the analysis part, um, If on the private desk, um, we had one analyst. So mm-hmm. we didn't have the luxury of ha- and no associate. So we had oh, okay. one guy that had the, we had to share. So the, the we had to get our hands dirty a little more often than a lot of the other um uh, VPs, but what typically happens in those cases is that in the meetings, uh, when you first go to pitch a client and they're giving you the financial information and you're sitting there talking about what you think you should do, they'll give you new financial data and so forth. You pretty much on the fly, you've got to be looking at and, and whipping out a calculator and be able to analyze the credit and, and, and discuss what are the implications on pricing right. and how much, how much, um, in terms of a quantity, um, how many bonds the market can absorb based on what you're seeing right there in that meeting. And so they're rating you against other banks 
based on what you say and how thorough and knowledgeable you are. So high, um, high pressure meetings because, well, you have somebody senior, like a partner or an MD with you, but they're kind of all looking at you to quickly rattle off the, <laughs> or give them some sort of data, right? Yeah, well, well, here's the interesting thing. As a VP, you're the guy. There's rarely, Got it. Uh, uh, on a private desk, there's rarely an MD. If there's an MD there, they'll run their own deals. But VPs, uh, uh, directors, MDs, everybody runs their own deals, and they actually are the only person. The only MD in that meeting is the relationship manager from the bank. And are you are That's you it. got it? And are you actually like sourcing your own deals, or is this like the banks feeding you to just do, you know setting up these meetings for you? The bank feeds them. It comes yep. from the relationship managers. Those got guys, it. those are the guys who just play golf for a living and got meetings, it. and they don't they don't touch an Excel sheet uh, <laughs> or it. or do anything. They, all they do is press flesh. So they, they yeah they so, they bring in the nerds like you and me, and then and then they're yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. So you're, you're doing that. That's, um, you're enjoying that, but then, you know, you're stop after a little over a year. What's the, what's the next transition? What's, uh, why did you stop? Um, what, what was going through your head at that point? I know it was right around before the, uh, dot com bubble. Right. So, uh, just after nine 11, mm-hmm. uh, which was a kind of a good time, but I had, um, uh, I had an in my, uh, mother-in-law had a rare disease uh, and, uh, needed care. And even though we pretty much had 24 hour care at the house and so forth, she yeah. had to go to a facility and the facility, the best facility was in Virginia. So we just made the decision to move to Virginia, uh, for family reasons. Got and it. so I did, I moved there and started my own boutique investment bank doing the same kinds of things, structured finance, uh, financial engineering, uh-huh. that kind of thing. Um, but on a much smaller level and just you, just uh, dealing with people um, with smaller businesses as opposed to lots of zeros. It's just a lot smaller deals. And was was that tough, like setting up shop? Was it, I mean, how long were you doing that for? Uh, actually, it continues now. Yep. And it's the, uh, the thing to so Almost 20 course, years. Uh, almost 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, just bid on a big company. Um that uh, it kind of went a little south when the parent company that owned the asset we were chasing uh, uh, lost uh, probably 75, 80% of their stock value. <laughs> so, um, yeah, things, uh, uh, unfortunate things happen uh, when, you're, when you're doing your own deals um, and sourcing them, sourcing them isn't very hard. It can't, um, I would say within the first year, uh, it got around pretty quick that any deal with hair on it came across my desk. <laughs> Bigger problem, the, uh, you know, in the D.C. area, in the metro D.C. area. So nope. everybody who had some, something that they but couldn't get why, done. Why did you get that reputation? Because you just knew credit really well and you knew how to deal with it? Yeah, it, it, not only credit, but structure. Got it. The structure that, that, that people lack. So they didn't know how to put a deal. You know, now this is an interesting thing. The, mm-hmm. Probably the most interesting thing that I got as a result of being a trader and being an instructor finance guy in bridging those two worlds together. Uh, when I look to um, do, finance a deal, I can invent a security and know how to do that. Whereas if you're just a banker, you won't think to do that. If you're just, you know, right. traders might, you know, think about like, you know, uh, different options. And if you're on the structured products desk, they, they do that all day long. But what I about know, what about bankers that are in restructuring? Um, 
I would get that information from yeah. from somebody in that desk. I would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious because I was yeah. in restructuring for two years. I I knew a little bit more about like capital structure than I think the typical M and A person would. But anyway, so we saw some really weird debt structures <laughs> and yeah. uh, security. You, you know, I use things like on the last deal and it was interesting because uh, I was proposing the use of uh, knock-in options mm-hmm. and it's a it's an awesome tool because you could still um, in this case where we had a uh, structured note the, the company was going to get full credit for let's just say the size of the note was a hundred million dollars they were going to get full credit for that note of uh, on their balance sheet for a hundred million dollars but I was clawing back say 75 million of it Mm. And saying I'm only going to give you 25 in the end of the day, but I was going to we structure. I, I was proposing to structure a uh, knock-in option, which meant that the option doesn't technically exist until the conditions met. Right? Got it. So, so it helps their balance sheet in the near term, and then when they're going to get cash, it it triggers the option. They get paid out. Then the whole thing uh, goes away. Is that so? It doesn't have to be in the book. It doesn't have to be in the books, and it helps with other banks and stuff like that. So the option is like almost phantom. Yeah, it's like a derivative of an option. I got full credit for the uh, for the equity piece too. Got it. I get a so that's why you do that. Got it. Really interesting. Very cool. So tell me. So you were down there for in D.C. Virginia area for a while, and were you enjoying that? Was that something that you felt was um, you know, having your own thing. I mean, obviously you're still doing it to this day. So obviously you, you like it somewhat, um, or you probably would have changed gears or gone back. Um, tell me about a little bit about like building your own team. Are you, you still keep it lean? Um, what's, what's going on now? Yeah. So I, uh, so on the investment banking side, mm-hmm. uh, I have, uh, like eight guys that, um, that all have their own firms and at any given time, um, you know, we will, we will uh, share resources or uh, or people yep. uh, to work on a transaction if it mandates that. A lot of the smaller transactions just just not they're not there's just not enough fat in the deal to warrant having a big team on it. But if you're pitching for some you know like to do something for the government or something like that, and you need a robust team, it's easy to pull in the resumes and the people uh, to work your deals. Yeah, uh, that's the easy part. But you, and and all of these guys are all Wall Street people, so got it. My team all have very look typically will look very different than the average team, which usually uh, in this area is going to be guys that work for regional um, um, boutiques and uh, stuff like that. You know, boutique firms yep. where it's kind of you know you you uh, you uh, eat what you kill kind of shops. Yep. So. Um, you know, they're low risk to the to the establishment, high risk to the guys. They're they're kind of one step removed from being like a business broker uh, kind of thing. So yep. it's a lot easier to compete against those guys because they just don't have the, um, the you know the, they don't have the zeros behind their name on uh, in terms of even deal experience. Right. You know, so you're able to point 15, to that. Sixteen billion in deal in deals. So yeah, a lot of guys. It's hard to you know if you're if you're messing around with companies that you know, top out at a hundred, 150 million in size, it's hard to get to a number like that. Yeah, no, for sure. That makes sense. So tell me, is this something that what's, what's next for you? What's the, do you feel like continue doing this? And, um, you know, I'd love to hear what you've been up to lately. And if you want to give a shout out to your other latest kind of venture, that's, sure. that's cool too. So, uh, I used 
all of this bank, this uh, my banking background to, um, uh, and as I would say, my best um, asset for me as a person is pro- is problem solving, mm-hmm. and so being really good at that. One of the, the things that I saw a problem with was um, in the area of politics. So I created a startup called Voter Voice. And basically, um, Voter Voice is a global, nonpartisan voting tool that uh, gives people greater transparency in democracy by allowing them to grade the performance of their politician. So basically we're making report cards on politicians. Very cool. And so, so what people know who to vote for. And so, uh, vote our voice, vote our voice.com is where people can learn more about it. Yes. Cool. Okay. And, and we're, uh, we're expanding into Canada, um, uh, for October and then we'll be going to the UK after that. So we had uh, 1.4 million people, uh, following us before the launch of uh, Vote Our Voice last um, um, October. That's awesome. And r- right now, on the platform, in terms of registered users, that where we've got data and information on the people, um, we've got 35 million total. That's unbelievable. Uh, mostly, wow. Mostly co- uh, concentrated in California and in Florida. Okay. Uh, our challenge is to just get is to get our active users up, and so right now we're just working on uh, on statistical significance in all 50 states. So we should have that by the end of December. It's exciting. That's really cool, yeah, man. That's a, that's an amazing that's an ama- amazing progress for such a short time time frame, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So congrats and, to you. And we and one of our funding things. So you know, just for people who are thinking like, what could you use a finance background for? I created a structured tax product because uh, finance is my strength. So I built the company around the fact that I knew that I could create this structured tax product that I could sell to corporations to help fund the, um, the business. So we've got like a proprietary, uh, tax product that we, that's, that we created. Mm-hmm. And, um, that gives us uh, an advantage over, uh, our competition, at least in terms of an additional funding source that the average person wouldn't have availability to. Do you feel and like you that? that stuff you, on the, but do you on feel like unstructured finance debt. is that actually like almost unrelated to the business, but you just put it under that business to give it fun- a funding source so that it's almost like a nonprofit exactly. with a, with a, with a revenue engine on the side almost to, to help feed it. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And it just, so it, we, we, um, were able to use the, um, the startup as, as just a vehicle to make that, uh, make that structured product go to be the gasoline to just pour on and make it go and be the recipient of the funds. So, um, so, you know, with the desk, like you were on or I were on, you get, you know, it's similar to the liability management desk that on a, uh, on, in a capital markets uh, group, um, where they basically are looking for ways to, uh, mitigate or substantially reduce tax liabilities for the big, biggest and best clients of this of the banks uh so it's just taking some of those principles and applying them to what you uh are doing with your startup to try and uh, find a way to succeed that's i love it so tell me before we call it i I think i don't want to take too much of your time but it's been 
you've had an, a very fascinating career. If you had to look back and kind of give your younger self some advice or give the young listeners here some advice, what, what would it be? What would be like the, the one key takeaway that you would wish to impart on them? Wow. Uh, <laughs> Is there anything like overarching theme yep. or anything you feel like would be helpful? Yep. I know exactly what it is, mm-hmm. and it's uh, and and I struggle because uh, I struggle with the with having to say it, um, only because, you know, I think uh, as I one day as I think I retire, I'll probably just have a stack of money that I trade and, you know, have the, a bunch of monitors in my house or in my <laughs> office and and just be you know like a professional trading setup in my house and do that. Yep. So that's the thing that is it's it's. You know, making money uh, on trades is just the most exhilarating and exciting thing. But if I had to give somebody, uh, give my younger self uh, uh, advice, I would go banking or or uh, uh, capital markets all the way. And the reason being is that at the end of the day, the skill you have as a trader is somebody gives you a stack of money and you make it grow. And outside of the southern tip of Manhattan, or at this point, midtown Manhattan, mm-hmm. um, nobody seems to really value that as a skill. And with, um, unless you're in like this really tight labor market, if it's just a normal labor market, if they need somebody in, um, let's say, the treasury group that might be dealing with uh, funding sources and all of that, instead of getting an ex-trader to then learn the treasury function, they just yep. get a seasoned guy who's a – there's plenty of smart people who have the direct experience that you're competing against that you have no advantage uh, with a trading background, and it's a harsh lesson to learn. So it's if you're not, if you're not a career person in that, it's a tough uh, transition. road to hoe yeah. and transition big time. You're going to have to figure out some, way, some ways or things that you can do to get there, and one thing's for sure – it is definitely going to be a reduction in income to uh, make that happen. Got if it. you have the banking background, um, you know, going from buy side, uh, going to a, uh, you know, from sell side to buy side, even though it's difficult, easier transition because everybody knows the experience that you have and what you, and especially when you have lots of deals. See, yeah. the other thing that you that you get to do with uh, on the banking or capital market side is you keep track and write, uh, keep a running list of every deal that you do. Right. So like in your resume, you have a transactions list. And that becomes the thing that you get to promote in terms of all the different financing, the technical aspects, all the things that were the nuances that go along with it. Yeah, it becomes That's almost done. like you're, st- you're branding yourself through your transactions as well, not just your, your company. Whereas in trading, it's a little harder because it's just a black box a little bit more. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's yep. A great. Now point. it's a little different on the sales side because the sales guys. I mean, if you got a, a a pipeline of guys that buy from you because they like they're buying from you, yep. it doesn't matter where you sit your hat. Having a book of business as a sales guy is a really valuable thing. And right. if I had to look back on it, it's like now I see the difference between you know in the beginning everybody wants to be the trader taking the risk, but then from a long term perspective, you know that book, having a book of business of people who buy from you is going to last a lot longer than your ability to trade and just, you know, make money on a, uh, in a, you know, being a two-year note trader or something. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Richard, thank you so much for taking all this time. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. 
If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.